0: Well thus far in our sermon series, we have established two seemingly contradictory things. As we've been working through the Creed of Chalcedon, first we established that Jesus Christ became perfectly human. He did not merely look like a human taking on only a body, but instead he took on the entire human condition, soul, mind, and body. He truly is the Son of Man. And last week, We then establish that he is perfectly God. We saw that his title, Son of God, refers to the relationship he has with God, the Father, in eternity. He is eternally begotten of the Father, and this makes him entirely equal to God. We thus establish that Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. But aren't those things at odds with each other? God is not a man, so how can Jesus be both God and man? I saw a YouTube video last week of a Christian man trying to evangelize a Muslim and he opened up his Bible and he started reading a Bible verse and in that Bible verse it referred to Jesus as the son of man and the Muslim stopped him and said, whoa, 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 whoa. Your Bible called Jesus the son of man. I thought he was supposed to be the son of God. So which one is it? Is Jesus God or is he man or maybe he was God and he stopped being God, became man, fulfilled a purpose and then he became God again right is that how we are to understand this what exactly does it mean how specifically is it that we affirm these seemingly contradictory things that Jesus is perfectly God and perfectly man the answer to this question lies in a crucial theological term the hypostatic Union the hypostatic Union if I had to summarize the entire Creed of Chalcedon I would say that it's an explanation of the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the heart and soul of this entire creed that we're devoting so much time to. And because of that, the hypostatic union is actually the heart and soul of Christmas itself. What we celebrate at Christmas time is the incarnation of Jesus, but to understand the incarnation, you have to understand what is the hypostatic union. So if you really want to impress your friends next Christmas season, you can tell them you're so excited for the hypostatic union season. Christmas is the time to celebrate this union. And so that's why we're going to spend our next two weeks, our final two weeks, unpacking the hypostatic union. Let's begin with a definition. We recited it in the creed. The creed specifically defines it this way. Speaking of the Son, the Son is to be acknowledged in two natures. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of nature's being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. To understand this definition, we're going to break it down into three parts. So these parts are the definition of the hypostatic union, three parts of that definition, but really you can just think of them as the three points in the sermon. A three-point sermon And here's the first thing we have to understand to understand that Jesus, or to understand what the hypostatic union is, and that first thing is that Jesus has two natures. Jesus has two natures, or as the creed says, he is to be acknowledged in two natures. Jesus can be referred to as the Son of God and the Son of Man simultaneously because he exists with two natures in his person. He eternally existed as God, which means that the Son of God was divine in His nature. If He was a divine person, then His nature, His substance, what He's made of, would be divine. So He already existed in eternity past as a divine person with a divine nature. In the incarnation, He created for Himself a human nature and joined it to His person. He joined a human nature to his already existing divine nature. And so therefore, he now exists as the God-man, both God and man in one person. So Jesus did not cease to be God when he took on flesh. He maintained his divine nature, but he partook of a created human nature, and these natures both exist together in Christ, which is why we call it a union. They have come together. And this makes Christ the most unique person in all of creation, in and over all of creation. Nothing else has this kind of dual nature. You are one person and you have one nature, a human nature. You're one person and you have a human nature in union with that person. Christ, unlike any other being, any other person, Christ has one person but two natures, a divine and a human nature. It can be difficult to point to one specific text to prove that Christ has two natures. Typically, the best way to understand or to prove biblically that Christ has two natures is to simply just read the entire New Testament. You just read the New Testament and you take note of how Jesus is referred to as man and God interchangeably. For examples, we see all throughout the New Testament, Jesus clearly having a human nature, right? He gets tired. He gets hungry. He learns things and grows in wisdom and knowledge. And the big one is he dies. He dies on a cross. So clearly, Jesus is a human being. These are things human beings do. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't grow weary or get hungry or learn or die. Humans do those things. So clearly, Jesus Christ is human. But we also see the New Testament referring to the same person at the same time as being clearly divine. The text tells us in the New Testament that he existed in eternity. He has the power to forgive sins. He knows the hearts and thoughts of men. He performs miracles. He raised himself from the dead. These are things human beings can't do. These are things human beings don't do. These are things that God does. And nevertheless, there are some specific texts, though, that we can turn to that I think will help us understand this portion of the creed and this important doctrine, the hypostatic union. But again, my encouragement to you is just as you read through the New Testament, especially the New Year's coming up, maybe you're doing a Bible reading plan, take note of how often the Bible will interchangeably, sometimes in the very same passages, refer to Jesus in human terms and in divine terms at the same time. But let's look at some texts that I think will help clarify this nonetheless. Turn to a text we've already turned to once before in this series. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Look just with me at verse 14, if you will. Hebrews 2.14. Since the, therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So notice in Hebrews 2.14, the ESV uses this word that I love. I, I think this is a crucial term, this word partook. Most of your Bibles will use the word partook or some of them might use the word share that he shared in. I love the word partook. This word partook to me is the most explicit, specific verb that we have to explain the hypostatic union. Notice clearly the presumption, in Hebrews chapter 1 proved this, was that Jesus existed before the incarnation in eternity past with God. So he was a divine person and therefore had a divine nature. In this divine nature, because he wanted to save humanity... Needed to, like the children of humanity, share in flesh and blood, and so he partook of these same things. This is the language of hypostatic union. Jesus created this nature and he partook of it. He joined it to himself, he entered it into himself. So there's nothing here of a conversion, the divine nature converting into a human nature. There's nothing here of a subtraction, of cutting out his divine nature and then having a human nature instead. One person with a divine nature partook or shared in full humanity. He partook of a human nature. And so we see in this text the hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ coming together so that he exists as the God-man. And it is in this passage that leads us to our next important point of the creed and of our definition. So we have already established and talked about that Christ is one person with two natures. That's the key so far. But the next thing we have to understand about these natures is that these natures never mix together or change. In the union of the natures, the natures never blend together and they never change. The Confession puts it this way, that although the natures are unified, we still recognize them as inconfusedly and unchangeably. The Creed also says indivisibly and inseparably, but we're going to talk about that next week. So it has these four adjectives, and we're just going to look at two of them. Christ's natures come together in a way that they are not confused or changed. And so that begs the question, what does it mean to acknowledge that Christ's human and divine natures are unified without confusion or change? What does that mean? Confusion in the creed is a synonym for what we would say is mixture. Christ's natures don't mix together. And a major problem with this idea is that it would logically require a new nature never talked about in scripture. Right? So if we took a divine nature and a human nature and we put them in a blender and blended them up and then poured it into a cup, we don't have human or divine anymore. We've got some new mixture. It's a new nature. But you can read through your entire New Testament and you will never spe- see some new nature that's never existed before attributed to Jesus. He doesn't mix together and come up with this new nature. He's always referred to as a man. He's always referred to as a God. There's no blending of the natures. And this is also why we say they are inconfusibly united. And this is also why we say then they are unchangeably united. Because once you begin that mixture process, you would inevitably change the two natures. Once nature one and nature two are blended together, Nature one is not what it was before the blending process and neither is nature two, right? So we have a new nature and both of these natures, not only are they blended together, but then that would force them to fundamentally be changed. And therefore, at the end of the mixing process, Jesus would no longer have perfect humanity or perfect deity. He would be quasi-human and quasi-divine. And this is why we confess not just that his natures are unconfused, but they are unchanged. If, if you were to, to believe that, then essentially what you would be saying about Jesus is what the ancient Greeks said about Hercules. You would, you would really not believe in Jesus, you would believe in Hercules. Hercules was a mythical demigod of ancient Greece, and he could be thought of as sort of half-man, half-god, a blending of the gods with humanity, making him a demigod. Yeah, he's kind of God. He's got God powers but he's also a mixture of man, so he's not fully God or fully man. That's how they recognized Hercules. But the Bible doesn't recognize Jesus as a demigod. He's kind of like God in some ways. He's kind of like man in some ways. You read through your New Testament, he is fully, perfectly human, exactly like we are. He is fully, perfectly God, completely equal to the Father. We cannot blend these things together. Now, I understand that using analogies like blendering and Hercules kind of makes this sound like a far-fetched, silly thing. But you need to know that this was actually a movement in church history. There were people who treated Jesus like a demigod, like a mixture of the human and divine nature. That's why this portion of the creed had to be written. Because they were trying to refute a heresy that we know today is Eutychianism. The creed here is trying to refute an important heresy known as Eutychianism. Eutychianism is named after a theologian and monk who lived from roughly 378 to 452, and his name was Eutychus. Now, Eutychus did not create Eutychianism. It existed a little bit before him, and there was a small movement. Regions believed in it. But because he was such a profound thinker, and he was already a leader in the church, he already had a lot of authority and respect. He kind of became the the, the main guy leading the movement. And so it ended up getting his name attached to it. This is a heretical movement, the Eutychians. And Eutychus recognized in the Bible that Jesus is one person. He saw that clearly. The Bible doesn't talk about two Jesuses, like the Son of God in heaven, and then there's a Jesus on earth, and, and those two, like, tag team, like, hey, buddy, do you and me want to, like, come together for this cool mission? Sure, bro, I'll do it, and they come together, right? That he saw that's silly. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Son of God, so we've only got one person, and he also recognized that I can go to Bible passages that clearly present this person as God. John 1, Hebrews 1, Philippians 2, the list goes on and on and on. This guy is God, and there's only one person here, and this one person's God. But I can go to all these other passages. Clearly, he's man. He is a human being. So how do we make sense of this? And what Eutychius said was, there's no way that a single person can have more than one nature. That doesn't make philosophical sense to me. So he maintained Jesus Christ has to have only one nature. So he's one person with one nature, But he's both God and man. So how do we have God and man? The only way to make sense of that at this point is to blend the natures together. Two natures blend into one new nature. This is why this heresy is also referred to as monophysitism. Eutychianism and monophysitism are essentially the same thing. And monophysitism means just that one nature. Monophysit, monot, one substance or one nature. So anybody who can, who affirms that Jesus Christ is not just one person but also only has one nature is actually affirming a very ancient heresy, the Monophysite heresy or the Eutychian, Eutychian heresy. Chalcedon condemns that in this creed, and I would argue rightly so on biblical grounds. Stay in Hebrews, but notice what chapter uh, say in Hebrews two, but look at verse seventeen and eighteen with me. So I want you to notice how clearly Hebrews 2 establishes that Jesus' humanity had to be exactly like ours. In every respect, it had to be like ours. He had to be made exactly as we are, and the logic of this is that's the only way He could honestly be a true High Priest to us. He would not be able to die on a cross, and He would not be able to be our High Priest If he did not have the same nature as us. Now, let me ask you this. According to Eutychianism, is it true that Christ has the exact same nature that you and I have? The answer to that is no. How many of you have a divine nature mixed in with your human nature? None of you. If Eutychianism is true, Christ is not like us. And what does that lead to? He then therefore cannot be our merciful and faithful high priest. Because when Christ was tempted, he was not tempted according to Hebrews chapter 2 just as we are. He was tempted as a demigod, something that we are not. And I would imagine that a demigod handles temptations better than a pure human being with no God. So Christ, if he is a demigod, if he is a mixture, then he is not really fit to be our high priest. He doesn't know what it's like to be tempted as a human being. He knows what it's like to be tempted as a demi human being. The crucial idea here is also, by the way, this very same idea is quoted by Paul in another very famous verse in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. And that verse says this For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's not a demi man. He's not a quasi-man, he's not a partial man, he is the man, Christ Jesus, and if he's not fully man, then according to this text, Hebrews 2, what? He can't be our mediator. He can't represent us. So it's important for us to reject monophysitism and see that Christ had a full, perfect, complete human nature. It wasn't changed, it wasn't partial, it wasn't mixed with something else, it was a, a separated, full human nature. But what's the other end of that coin? We also need to see the same thing in regards to His divine nature. And we do see that in Scripture. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians... As I learned growing up, get everyone popcorn. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 with me, please. Speaking of God's beloved Son, Jesus, verse 15 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I read that entire passage because it's just so beautiful and it's so profound it's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible and it is one of the clearest passages we have. To prove the deity of Christ. But we don't need the whole passage for our purposes today. Although this, the argument I'm making could be made in many of these verses. I want us to focus in specifically just on verse 19. How does verse 19 describe Jesus? Is he a demigod? Is he quasi-god? Is, the, is half of God in Christ? No. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is not lacking any divinity. His divinity has not been marred or changed or mixed by human humanity. He didn't take half of his divinity into the incarnation. However you want to describe it, mixture, half, whatever, Jesus is fully God. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. This is not a mixture. He is fully man and fully God. So we have to see that these natures do not mix. They remain Distinct. They're unified, but they're distinct. And that leads us, importantly, to our final point, that while these natures are unified, or forgive me, they are not mixed, that's our second point, that they're not mixed, and then our third point is that the natures are unified, therefore, we need to keep them distinct. They are not mixed, and therefore, we need to keep them distinct. Uh, Forgive me, that's point number three. The creed puts it this way, The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. So because they have not mixed, what's the logic? We can speak of them distinctly, the way I've been doing this entire sermon. It's appropriate to distinguish between the natures that are in Christ. And I want to show you how comfortable the scriptures are doing this very thing. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 1. We've looked at this verse before. But as with almost every passage in the Bible, there's a lot of things you can learn from it. So we're looking at different points in some of these passages. Look at me with me beginning in verse 3. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking of who Christ is according to the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In verse 3, the Holy Scriptures speak concerning His Son... Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was co- declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, Paul tells us that Jesus essentially has two contradictory points of dissension. The latter point is that he clearly has descended from God, he is God's Son, he is the Son of God. And the resurrection proved that. But he's somebody else's son too. Verse 3 tells us that he descended from David. So Jesus is both David's son and God's son. So how do we understand this contradiction? Well, because Paul clarifies in verse 3. How specifically is Jesus the son of David? He descended from David, what? According to the flesh. Christ's divine nature did not descend from David. Christ's divine nature created David. David did not create the divine nature. It's only according to his humanity that he is a true child of David. Paul does this very thing again in Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, very famous chapter, and the beginning of the chapter is extremely famous because Paul begins by lamenting how many Israelites are not saved. We've got all of these Jews who have rejected their Messiah, and he laments that. He talks about how he would be willing to make himself accursed if it meant their salvation. It's really beautiful, and what he does is he wants to prove why the Israelite people are such an important people. Why do they matter so much? Why is it so specifically uh, sad that they, of all people, don't believe in Jesus? Well, here's why. Look at verse 4. Romans 9, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Let's stop there. So that's a long list of really great things of privileges, special blessings that the Israelite people have that nobody else has. But what is their keystone privilege? The thing Paul ends with. What is the climaxing privilege of being an Israelite, a Jew? Verse 5, where we left off. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. This is astonishing. Notice, we only have one Christ. He doesn't say that there's two Jesuses. There's one Christ, and he's God over all. He is the sovereign God. Jesus Christ is the sovereign God over all things, and yet this Jesus Christ is said to have a race, an ethnicity. And so Paul wants to clarify what he means by that. Jesus is an Israelite. He has a race, again, according to the flesh. Jesus existed in the beginning with God. He was God overall, then too. And in the beginning, Jesus Christ didn't have a race. Let me ask you this rhetorically. Is God Jewish? How would you answer that question? If someone came up to you and just on the street randomly and said, Is God Jewish? How would you answer that question? Without the two natures of Christ, I don't know how you do it. Jesus is God. Jesus is Jewish. Therefore, God is Jewish. That's, that's logical. That works. But we have this problem. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not Jewish. God is not Jewish. And yet, here we have Paul in the same verse. He's both Jewish and God. Why? Because Paul keeps the natures distinct. He is Jewish according to the flesh. His divine nature does not have a race. God is not Jewish. He is not black, white, brown, Asian, or Arab. In these two passages from Romans, Jesus' natures are distinguished. They are unified in one person, but they are distinguished. And that's exactly what the creed says. And the creed takes us even further, reminding us even more clearly what it means to distinguish between the natures. The creed adds this little saying, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. If you want to understand, what does it look like in my daily life to be able to distinguish between the natures? The answers of the creed is to keep the property of each nature preserved. Tied to that nature. You're thinking, okay, you've just used the word nature a lot. I don't understand what you're saying. Here's what I'm saying more clearly. Jesus' human nature has attributes or properties, things that human beings do. His divine nature also has attributes or properties, things that God does. And what we can't do is because the natures aren't mixed, we cannot take the properties from one nature and apply them to the other. Let me give you one of my favorite examples of this. You don't have to turn there. We're not going to read it. But in John chapter 13 and into the beginning of 14, Jesus tells his disciples that soon he is going to go to a place where they cannot follow. They are following him now, but soon he will depart from them and he will go to a place they cannot go. And he tells them very clearly, you can't follow me, you won't be with me anymore. This makes them very sad sad. But he comforts them by promising to send the spirit in his stead. And then he also comforts them by promising one day I will return and I will take you to that place and you will be with me again. So John 14 very clearly establishes that at the ascension Jesus goes away from the disciples. They're not together anymore. So what does that mean for us? That means it is biblical to say you, me, Redeemer Christian Fellowship, Jesus is not with us right now. He's not here. He has gone to a place very clearly we cannot go. We are not with Jesus right now. The Bible is very clear about this. Jesus is in heaven. We are in Roswell. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. We're in a building. We are not with Jesus. That's why we need the Spirit, because He's gone. But notice Jesus said something else to his disciples before his ascension. Matthew chapter 28. What did he promise his disciples before he went to that place where they cannot go and be with him? What did he promise them? I will be with you to the end of the age. So I'm going to a place where you cannot come but I'll be with you. So you're not with me but you are with me. How do we make sense of this? Here's how we make sense of this. Because the properties of each nature remain distinct. Jesus' human nature is not with us right now. It's in heaven. But because he has a second distinct nature, a divine nature which is omnipresent, he can be everywhere at one time. So Jesus, in one sense, is not in this room right now. But in a very another, equally real sense, Jesus is among us. He is with us until the end of the age. (coughs) Though physically, he is not here. So what are we doing? We're keeping the properties of each nature distinct. What would happen if we made Jesus' human nature omnipresent? Jesus' human nature exists everywhere. What would happen? We would die. There'd be no room for us. Because part of his human nature is a human body. So if his human nature is omnipresent, his body has to be everywhere. And if his body is everywhere, there's no room for me and you. We would die. His human nature is not omnipresent. But he has an omnipresent nature. So in one sense, we can affirm, Christ is not here right now. I can't touch him. I can't see him. I can't talk to him. He's not with us, but I'll be with him one day. And in the same breath, we can, without contradicting, say, Christ is very much present in this room with us today. His body is not. His divine nature is. Just to give a a couple other examples, when Jesus got hungry, it would be inappropriate to say, God can get hungry. Can God the Father get hungry? Can God the Holy Spirit get tired and need a nap? Can Satan march up to heaven and take a sword and kill God the Father? None of these things can happen. God doesn't get hungry. God doesn't get tired. So when Jesus got hungry, when Jesus gets tired, if we blend the natures together and we refuse to make, distinguish between them, we've got a big problem on our hands. Because now we have God who gets hungry, tired, and dies. Keep the natures distinct and keep the properties of those natures distinct. Let me end the sermon with an analogy. If you're like me, you might still be a little confused, and that's okay. It's a great mystery to understand how one single person can have two distinct but unified natures. That's a great mystery. We're gonna explore it a little bit more again next week, but at the end of the day, it's going to remain a mystery. But let me still nonetheless try to give you an analogy to just help a little bit. Many theologians have appealed to our own makeup as human beings. To try to both help us better understand the hypostatic union. And here's what I want to do: I want to use this analogy for two purposes. First, I do think it could kind of help us, not much, because no analogy is perfect, but it'll help us just a little bit understand the mystery of two things coming together in one person. But the the, the more important reason why I want to end the sermon with this analogy is because I rather what I would rather do is Instead of helping you to understand the hypostatic union, I just want you to be comforted in knowing you don't have to fully understand it to believe it and live your life according to it. In other words, I think many people, when they hear me constantly say things like, well, this is a mystery, this is a mystery, this is a mystery, you might immediately want to jump into this, well, then it must be nonsensical. Is calling this a mystery the same thing as saying it just doesn't make sense? It's a contradiction, it's unworkable. I'm not saying that, and I, and I think this analogy will help you see that there are things that we don't understand fully, but we don't immediately jump to, well, then therefore they're not true. And here's how your own identity as a human being, I think, kind of helps does those two things. Now, we are not like Christ. We don't have two natures. We only have one nature. But nonetheless, it might be helpful for me to remind you that you are composed of both a material and immaterial concept. You have both material and immaterial, brain and mind, body and soul. Let me ask you just rhetorically, do you entirely comprehend the nature of that union? Is there any mystery to that union at all? If you say no, then I'm just going to ask you one of these days, I'll bring up a chalkboard or a whiteboard, and I'll have you come up and sketch to us the exact mechanism that the soul interacts with the body. How the brain interacts with the mind. How the body interacts with the soul. These things are in union. Your physical self can affect your spiritual self. Your spiritual self can affect your physical self. These things are in union. And notice what we don't do. We don't treat you like you're two different people. I don't show up in the morning and say, hey, is that the material bill or the immaterial bill back there making communion? I don't know which one of the bills it is. There's one bill. But he is both material and immaterial and none of us really understand that union and how it works. It's quite a mystery, is it not? How does our mind affect our brains? Like what's happening in our soul when we put things on our heads and measure our brain waves? Is the soul controlling the brain? But then how does it, when you get a brain injury, that can change your personality? So the brain controls the soul, but the soul controls the brain. This is a mystery. We don't really know. But we don't deny it. We don't, I, just, I must not have a, a material component to me. I must just be material. Oh, I must, this must just be a hologram. I'm, just, I'm only soul and spirit. There's no material here because I can't make sense of that union. We don't just reject the union because we don't fully understand it. And so I, I want to submit to you that this applies to the hypothetic union. Christ is one person with two natures. And this is a mystery, but we can nonetheless affirm this and live our lives according to this without having to fully comprehend or exhaust or pretend to have completely understood it and all of its reality.